1 John chapter 3, verse 10. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother, and for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil, and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. May the Lord bless his word, and may he write it upon our hearts for the salvation and the sanctification of our souls. You may be seated. Now let's bow together and go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we come to you and we give you the highest praise for you and you alone are worthy to be praised. You're the creator of the world. You're the creator of all things. Nothing that we see in existence would have happened if not for your creating the world. You are the ruler over all things because you are the creator of all things. And so we must submit ourselves to your authority. Lord, you make plain to us in your word, the Holy Bible, that we are all sinners. And we all fall short of your glory. Lord, you also make clear that you have made a way to salvation through Jesus Christ, your beloved Son. And I ask, Lord, that we would understand the good news of the gospel today. That Christ died for our sins. That he took our penalty. That he was raised from the dead on the third day. And he has returned to heaven, ascended to glory, where he ever lives and pleads on our behalf. Lord, may we hear the good news. May we repent and believe and give our lives to Christ. May we turn from our sinful ways, acknowledge Jesus as Lord, Master, and Savior. Lord, as we come to study your word, we understand that your word teaches and instructs us in the way of righteousness, in the way that we should live. We understand that your word gives us laws and commands that if we are in Christ, we will desire to follow and to obey. And we understand, as Christ said, that the law can really be summed up in these two statements, that we must love you, the Lord our God, with our whole heart, we must love our neighbor as ourselves. So, Lord, I pray that you would instruct us in your law today. I pray that you would show us what it means to truly love one another. I pray that we would consider the example of Christ's love for us. And that you would cause us to desire to follow after that example because we love and are devoted to Christ. Lord, I pray by the powerful working of your Holy Spirit that you would take your truth and make it plain and clear and evident to us. 
Pray that like a seed, you would plant your word in our hearts, and then your Holy Spirit would cause it to bear fruit in our lives. If we strive in this time in your word and our own strength, our, our work and our strivings will be in vain and it will fail. But Lord, if you should so choose by your Holy Spirit to move in our hearts, to show us our sin, to grant us repentance, and to conform our lives to the example of Christ, to help us to die to sin and be alive to what is good and right. Lord, if you choose to do that work, we have complete confidence that that work will be done. So, Lord, may it be done according to your will, according to your purposes. May we have eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to receive and apply and respond to the truth. And, Lord, we pray this all to praise and the honor of your glory and grace. Pray that we would be Christ's people, his possession his bride, pure and spotless. May we accomplish all the things that you intend for us to accomplish today. We pray in Christ's name, amen. So as we come to this new section, kind of the rest of chapter 3, there's really a clear flow to these verses 11 through 24. Really, you could almost take these verses and preach one single four-point sermon, and it would be very cohesive, and it would make a lot of sense. Or we can spend several weeks here and kind of pull out a lot of what the Lord would have for us through His Word. And as you've already gathered, we're going to take the long route. We're going to spend some time and let the Lord teach us and instruct us what it looks like to love. He's going to show us the call to love. He's going to show us the display of love, what love looks like actively in our lives. He's going to show us the results of our loving one another because we're alive in Christ. And then he's going to show us the significance of that love, that it gives us a great hope as we know one day we will all stand before the judgment seat of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is the Christ-like love of the saints. It's love that flows out of being new in Christ. It's focused on others. It changes our lives and it proves that we belong to him. We walk in this love because we belong to Christ. Think about the words that John had heard directly from the mouth of Jesus. That night that Jesus was betrayed, the night that he was arrested, and the day before he went to the cross to die for our sins, Jesus said to his disciples in John 13, By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Later on that evening, that was not a one-off type of statement. Later on that evening in John 15, He said, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. The Apostle John witnessed Jesus saying those things. At the end of John's gospel, when Peter, he had denied Christ, he had 
fallen away and Jesus was going to restore Peter. He was going to recommission him into ministry. And what was the Lord's instruction? What, what was his question to Peter to see if he was ready to be sent back into the ministry? Do you love me? So tie all that together. It's love of Christ that results in love of others, love of the brethren. Clearly, this was of great importance to our Lord. Friends, you may not have earthly gifts to give to others. You may not have food or clothing or the ability to give financial support and the like, but you can show one another the love of Christ. You may not be a gifted speaker. You may not be comfortable standing in front of people teaching them the word of God, but you can show others the sacrificial love of Christ. You may not be full of outward spiritual gifts. You have a spiritual gift given from the Lord if you are in Christ, but perhaps it's not a public outward gift, but you can show others the selfless, sacrificial love of Christ. This is for every believer. When a fellow saint walks through tribulation, dear friend, you can show them the comforting love of Christ. When a brother or sister falls prey to sin, when they stumble into sin, you can show that brother or sister the correcting love of Christ. You show love through correction. When you, when a brother or sister is battling sin and fighting for their spiritual life, but they're putting in the effort. They're fighting against that nature of sin. You can show them the patient, enduring love of Christ. Maybe there is a newly converted saint who struggles to understand the finer points of doctrine, the finer points of the faith. You can lead that new saint by example to the wisdom imparting love of Christ. Every person that is in Christ can show that love to others. You must show and display the love of Christ. That's what the Apostle Paul wrote about. He said it would never fail. He said love endures to the end, but now faith, hope, and love abide these things. But the greatest is love. Hebrews 13, 1. Let the love of the brethren continue. Romans 12, verse 10, Paul said, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. In 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter, the apostle of Christ, said, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. And above all, keep fervent. And your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. We could go on and on in Scripture about the importance of brotherly love because Scripture is full of exhortations to love and it always draws back to Christ. That's the important takeaway just from from basically the introduction. We are called to love and we see the chief example and the chief outworking of love in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. How do we see it in Christ? How do we see perfect love in Jesus? Well, he took on flesh. He was God from eternity past, and yet he came to his creation. 
He lived a perfect, holy, sinless life. Not one time did he break a command of God. He's perfect in every way. And yet though he was perfect, what did Christ do? He went to a cross. He was treated as the vilest of criminals, and he was nailed to a wooden cross so that he could bear the spiritual punishment that God had reserved for every sinner who would come to Christ in faith. So yeah, he suffered immensely, immense physical pain. But far greater than that was the weight of his father's wrath for your sin. That was the ultimate suffering of Christ on the cross, that he took punishment that belonged to you and punishment that belonged to me. And that was not the end. He died on that cross. He was laid in a grave. And on the third day, just as the scriptures had foretold, just as Jesus himself had said, he rose from the dead. He came out of that grave to show that he had defeated the power and the penalty of sin, that he had defeated the power of death. And then he returned to heaven. He sits at the right hand of his father, and he sits at the right hand of his father proclaiming your innocence if you belong to him, proclaiming that your sins are forgiven because he took their punishment. Your debt is completely wiped clean. But you must come to him in faith. You must repent of your sin. Repent means to turn away from something, to agree with God that what you have done is wrong and sinful and breaks his law. And so you agree with him and you turn away from that. And you place your trust and your hope and your life all in his hands. You have hope because you know what Christ did, that he died and that he rose again and that now he reigns on high and intercedes on your behalf. That was the love of Christ. That he was willing to take a punishment that he didn't deserve. The only way that you or I could be forgiven is because Jesus bore the punishment that you have earned. It would be like if someone was being set to be taken into prison because they had committed all kinds of heinous sins, and you show up and you tell the judge, no, let me take their place. I'm innocent, but I will take their place, and the judge decides to carry out that sentence upon you. That's what Christ did. He took the sentence. He took the punishment that you and I deserve. Wondrous love that Christ has shown us. And we are called to model and to imitate that same very love to one another. Selflessness. We're to be sacrificial. We are to be humble. We're to consider one another above ourselves. All of the world does not revolve around us, but it revolves around Christ and the glory of God. John shows us this as we come into our text. He shows us this really by showing the opposite of what love looks like in the example of Cain and Abel. He shows us the way of the lost, the way of the world. It's self-preservation. It's self-promotion, it's self-gratification, and the way of Christ is the exact opposite of that. For Christ did not protect himself. He willingly gave his life. He, he didn't seek his own pleasure, but rather was punished on our behalf. 
He certainly did not pursue gratification, though being eternal God, and he could have called all things to take care of him and to rescue him, and he could have delivered himself off the cross. But he didn't do it because he was going to bear his father's wrath. So the backdrop of the call to Christ-like love is that we must know the love of Christ. So in this text, we want to see that as followers of Christ, we must follow his example in selfless love and in righteous living as we embrace the hatred of the world. We haven't gotten really to that yet, but we'll see in verse 13 that the world hates you when you love as the scriptures instruct. So the saints must follow Christ's example in selfless love, in righteous living, as we embrace the world's hatred. Let's look at verses 10 and 11 and consider the priority of love. Again, John writes, By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Just think about verse 10 for a moment. We looked at most of it last week, but just that last phrase that we obviously show ourselves as children of God or children of the devil by whether or not we love one another. Jesus himself said that you must love one another. By this the world will know you if you love one another. So what does that really tell us is that There's a distinct love that you and I as Christians have for one another. Yes, we are to love those in the world. Christ said to pray for your enemies, to pray for those who persecute you, to love them, to show them his love. But to display the love of Christ for a fellow saint shows the world that we are called out from the world, that we are in the world, but we are not of it. It shows the world the transforming power of the grace of God given to us in Christ. To fail to walk in, to fail to desire, to fail to grow in this selfless love of one another shows but one thing. If you don't strive to love each other in this way, it shows, by what John says in verse 10, that you are a child of the devil. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. If you walk in righteousness and if you love one another. Failing to walk in an increasing love for one another is every bit as indicative of being dead in your sin as one who walks in and practices adultery or any form of immorality. You know, we, we often like to, to set up this hierarchy of sins that, that things like murder and adultery or other forms of immorality are, are way worse sins than other things. But what John shows us here is that you are just as guilty as the adulterer if you fail to love one another. James would say if we break the law in one point, we're guilty of breaking the whole thing. So let me tell everyone in this room, you are a sinner. You are guilty before God. You are in need of a Savior. You need to be transformed. And you need to walk in righteousness. So righteousness 
and selfless love really go hand in hand. Oftentimes, I feel like those are, are, are separated, that, that we want to say, okay, we'll pursue righteous living, but we're going to kind of fall short and not focus on love, or, or there's the opposite imbalance of we're going to focus all of our attention on loving everyone, but we don't give any attention to righteous living. Dear friend, that's not the teaching of the Bible. That's the teaching of the world, and it will send your soul to hell if that is what you subscribe to. As righteousness and love are linked, we must see, hear this, we must see that genuine love promotes righteous living. Genuine love for others causes you to strive to be more righteous, and it causes you to desire for others to be more righteous. It's not loving if I let you continue in sin and and don't call you to repentance. What that's called is hate because it sends you on a pathway to eternal condemnation. Love is to tell a sinner that they must repent. Love is to tell another saint who is dabbling in sin that they must repent and they must return to Christ. They must love him and forsake their life of sin. So we come to verse 11. This is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. This is the message we have heard from the beginning. It goes all the way back to the beginning. And John even shows us the example in the first family of creation. The call to love did not begin with Christ. It didn't begin in the prophets of the Old Testament. It didn't begin when the Lord gave the law to Moses. The command to love is from the beginning. The Lord's standard has always been that we must love him and we must love one another. The Lord has clarified, he has illustrated, he has explained that command over time, but that command has always been love him and love others. Think about the nature, the the emphasis with which John writes here. It's not really plain and clear necessarily in the English, but in the original Greek, uh, this is a strong statement. This is the message which you have heard. Message is a word that speaks to a proclamation. So the Lord's not just kind of calling us to love and and hoping maybe we'll catch on and, and learn by osmosis. No, He is calling and commanding and proclaiming that you, as a follower of Christ, love Him with all your heart, and then resulting from that love for God, you love others. You practice and display the love of Christ. This command has been made more clear over time. Throughout the the revelation of Scripture, we get a better understanding of what this love looks like. Ultimately, we see the, the perfect and the clearest example in Christ, right? We've already talked about how we see the call and the example of perfect love in Christ laying down his life at the cross so that you could be forgiven of your sins. History, as we'll see in the text, and present experience will show us pictures of those who do not love well, those who do not love righteously. But the command still is from the beginning. And since the command is from the beginning, things like what Paul says, since the command doesn't change in Ephesians 4, 
Paul says that we are to speak the truth to one another in love. And we speak the truth to one another in love for the building up of the body of Christ in love for him and love for one another. The truth results in righteousness. Love results in speaking the truth to the end of righteousness. So if we don't pursue holy living, if we don't desire others to pursue holy living and life in Christ, how are we really loving? How are we showing someone real love if we don't have concern for their eternal souls? Just thinking about this specific command for a moment, and in the weeks ahead we'll get more into what love looks like, but John says we should love one another. And so I don't want to just pass by that without thinking about it for a moment. Love is, is an active and present verb. It's something that we're commanded to do actively and presently. It's, it comes from the Greek word agape, which speaks of an unconditional, selfless, unassuming love. It's a love that does not expect nor require anything in return. That's a good way to stop and examine ourselves. Do you expect something in return when you show love and mercy and compassion to somebody? Or do you love them with the selfless love that is described and shown in Scripture? Love that is unconditional, that is selfless, that does not expect nor require a return. Again, Christ is the perfect example of this love. And if you want to grow in loving like this, your friend, you need to study the life and the ministry of Christ. All of Scripture will instruct you as to how to love. But if you want to see the perfect example on display, go spend time reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Look at the life of Christ, and you'll understand and you'll see that it's not just this flowery type of love where he never confronts sin or error or sinners. But no, rather, Jesus shows love by confronting sin, by calling sinners to repent, by saying they must turn from their sin, or when they come to the judgment seat on the last day, he will say, depart from me because I never knew you, because you're a worker of lawlessness and sin and iniquity. Study the life of Christ, and you will understand what true love looks like. Think about the object, then, of this love before we move forward. We should love one another. Dear friends, just to be very frank, it's easy to consider this command to love until you get to the object of love, that you are to love other people. Loving others is difficult. People can be difficult to love because there are difficult people. But the Lord gives no outs. He gives no caveats. He gives you no reason to say, okay, well, this person has done this, that, and the other to me, and therefore I don't have to love them. No, John says, love one another. No ifs, ands, or buts. It's easy to love when... We're getting along when we're walking in unity. It's easy to love when things are going smoothly, when the church is flourishing, when the bills are paid, and when our suffering is light. It's easy to quote-unquote love 
when it doesn't cost you anything. But that's not the command of Scripture. You are to love without reserve, without caveat. You are to love at all times, presently, actively, continually, and devotedly. Love for others and a desire to be with those whom you love is a sign of being a, being a Christian, a saint in the first place, but it's also the sign of being a maturing believer. You want to be with the people you love. If you love one another, you want to be here on Sunday morning. You want to be here on Sunday night. You want to be here on Wednesday night. You want to fellowship throughout the week because these are the people that you love. These are the people who encourage you. These are the people who you encourage. These are the people who hold you accountable for sin. These are the people who carry you when you're weeping. These are the people who pray for you when you're walking through the storms of life. If you love one another, you'll want to be together. And and it's not difficult to get yourself here on a Sunday morning or any other time that the church is gathered. You'd rather be with the saints than to be with worldly people. Again, this is where we consider Peter's instruction. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Keep fervent. Keep striving. Let your love continue and increase. Then there's a problem as we continue into verse 12. So we've seen the priority of love, but what about the problem of sin? It's It's a real problem and a very clear problem. Verse 12, John says, Not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother, but for what reason did Cain kill Abel? It was because his deeds were evil and his brother's deeds were righteous. This is a very obvious and clear example of someone who does not love well. But we also see, I think, a clear look as to what causes someone not to love well. What does John say first about Cain? He says he was of the evil one. He belonged to Satan. Satan was Cain's father. An unrighteous and ungodly person is incapable of selfless love. Sometimes people appear to love others, but if they're not in Christ, if they don't have new life in him, a heart that has been made new through salvation... They can't actually love. They're always doing it because there's something else for them to gain. It could be personal pleasure. It could be personal satisfaction. It could be a position of power or authority. It could be the appeasement of their conscience. But if someone is not alive in Christ, their love, dear friend, is never real and genuine. Maybe that's controversial to some, but there's biblical backing to that. Scripture says that no one is good. Romans chapter 3, no one is righteous. No one seeks after God, but love is good. Love is paired with righteousness. And so anyone who loves truly must be doing what the Lord has commanded, and so they must be in Christ. So I'd encourage you, do not be overly suspicious. Do not be overly leery of other people. But be discerning and be wise 
and understand that there are those who will, who will show a fake love and they will flatter you and they will pretend to love you, but it's only because they've got something to gain from you or from at least showing that type of love to you. The outworking of Cain's lack of love is also very apparent. He slew his brother. He killed his brother. We're probably familiar with that story from the beginning of Genesis when they offered sacrifices to the Lord, and the Lord accepted Abel's offering. He rejected Cain's offering. Cain was filled with rage and anger, and he went out and killed his brother. But why did he do that? John 8, 44, Jesus said, You are of your father the devil. You want to do the desires of your father. And he was a murderer from the beginning. Even before Cain and Abel, Satan had shown his murderous intent. When he came and deceived Adam and Eve in the garden and, and, and brought sin into the world by that deception, he showed that his desire was to trap and condemn souls for all eternity. He was a murderer from the very beginning. To lack love is to have the heart of a murderer. And that heart, that murderous intent goes all the way back to Satan at the very beginning. So we could keep talking about Satan, but I want to turn our focus to Cain because uh, this example of Cain and Abel is really fascinating when you think about it, again, says, what reason did Cain kill Abel? What reason did he slay him? Because Cain's deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Abel's offering was accepted. Cain's offering was rejected. Abel was righteous before God and Cain was not. What was the difference between the two? They were in literally the first family of creation. What was the difference? Abel had faith. He gave his offering in faith. He obeyed what the Lord had called him to do when the Lord called him to give an offering. And thus, the Lord received his offering. It was pleasing and acceptable in God's sight. That's like genuine faith in repentance. Cain, on the other hand, he just gave what came out of his work. It was obviously not that which, which followed the Lord's command, and the Lord rejected it. That's like us trying to make salvation be on our own terms. Perhaps you want to claim that you're saved, but your life never changes. That's not salvation as described in God's word. But you're transformed. The Lord takes out your cold, dead, stony heart, and he puts a soft, new, living heart in you. Cain tried to give his offering on his own terms, and the Lord rejected it. Dear friend, if you try to have salvation, and I'll put quotes around that because you don't just have salvation, but if you try to have salvation on your own terms, friend, I plead with you that you must not do that. You must come to Christ in faith because otherwise you'll come to him on that last day and you'll be cast into the fiery hell for all eternity. You know, this is really what's wrong with the world's idea of love today. The world defines love on whatever terms and in whatever way the world wants to define it, and they completely miss the definition that God gives us for love. 
And as a church, as followers of Christ, we must cling to what is shown in Scripture as the right way to love God. And that's seen in the example of Christ. The division between Cain and Abel was that Abel's deeds were righteous. What makes a person difficult to love often is because they are not lovable. They are unrighteous. They are dead in trespasses and sins, but that still does not lessen our call to love all people. What it does do is remind us of the great and important need to call sinners to repentance, to show lost people the good news of the gospel of Christ. As we think about Cain and Abel and the problem of sin, we see that the problem of sin is that it will seek to devour you. It'll seek to bring you down. That's what the Lord told Cain in Genesis 4-7 in this story. The Lord told Cain, he said, if you do well, if you give a, a pleasing offering, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Dear friend, you won't master sin in your own strength. You cannot muster up the strength to have faith in Christ. He must give you new life. You must flee and turn from your sin and push your hope and place your faith in the one true God who can be your Savior. Satan's greatest attack is to place you at the center of your own universe. The greatest way that Satan works his lies and his blasphemies into the world is he makes you think and believe that you are the center of the universe. Because then you will go out. If you're the center of the universe, everything revolves around you. But the whole purpose of creation, of all creation, of every person, the whole purpose is that we glorify God and that we enjoy glorifying Him, that we have life and our desire is to please Him because we love Him, because we see the the kind and gracious and loving work that he did for us in his son. But there's sin, and we must battle against it. So the priority of love, the problem of sin, and then verse 13, just briefly, the promise of hate. The promise of hate. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. Do not be surprised if the world hates you hates you. Do you see how clear it is that when you walk in true love that the world is going to hate you? True, biblically defined love. John says, don't be surprised. Don't wonder at it. Don't marvel at it. Don't be amazed at it because there's this clear contrast. If you love according to the world's definition of love, yeah, you will be loved because you're letting people do exactly as they please. But if you love according to Scripture by bringing the truth of God to bear on hearts and lives, do not be surprised when the world hates you. When you love, John says, when you love one another fervently from the heart, you can expect one thing, and that's rejection and hatred. And isn't that interesting in the peculiar age in which we live? The world preaches love at every turn, 
But if you practice that biblically defined idea, you'll be hated and rejected. And this is why it's always important to define our terms, right? We can, we can all say, yeah, I'm loving other people, but to you that may mean something completely different than it means to me, but ultimately it doesn't matter what I think, it doesn't matter what you think, it matters what the Bible says because the Bible is the ultimate authority. It's God's word revealed to us. Maybe some of you are familiar with the band The Beatles. In the 1960s, they released a song. I I read these lyrics when I was preparing this message, and it just, really, it's quite ridiculous. The song, All You Need Is Love. Let me read you a few lines that really just repeated over and over through the song, because this is what the world thinks. Yeah, this was, what, 50, 60 years ago, but this is exactly what the world still thinks today. The Beatles would sing, all you need is love, all you need is love. Love is all you need. Love is all you need. Dear friend, the love of the world is that you would let people love who they want, how they want, what they want, when they want. That's what the Beatles had in mind when they sang that song, that that everybody just gets to define whatever they think love is. Today, if someone doesn't love their God-assigned gender, love them by letting them become something else. Perhaps someone doesn't love that the Lord calls us to heterosexual relationships. Well, just let them love whoever or whatever they want. And on and on it goes with the world. The moment that you love someone enough to tell them that their sin will condemn them to hell for all eternity if they don't repent of their sin and believe in the name and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to be hated, you're going to be rejected, you're going to be called judgmental, and you're going to be told that you're not being loving. But dear friend, you could do nothing more loving for someone than to show them their sin and point them to the hope that's only in Christ the only way that you can really love someone. For the world, it's really not all about love. It's about carnal, fleshly, selfish, sinful desires. But the danger, dear friends, the danger for us is that this mindset even seeks to infiltrate the church. That even those who would call themselves followers of Christ and maybe be faithful attenders and faithful members of churches, they will sweep sin under the rug and in practice ignore genuine accountability. Countless times people, I've heard people say that love covers a multitude of sins and and what they want to do with that, it's a Bible verse. Yeah, Peter did say that. We've read it multiple times. But they do that in order to avoid accountability, to to sweep sin under the rug, and to undercut a person who is bringing loving accountability about in a relationship. Dear friend, let me be clear. Love does cover a multitude of sins when that fellow person, when that person is repentant. Then you do cover sin. Like Peter, he asked Jesus, how many times do I forgive someone if he sins against me? 
Jesus says, well, when he repents, you forgive him 70 times 7. You keep on forgiving when there's genuine repentance. But you never, never, never sweep sin under the rug because it's sin that nailed Christ on the cross. It's sin that brings a reproach on the name of God. Dear friend, you must love one another enough to hold each other accountable. Love covers sin. No one should ever face public humiliation or, or shame when they are repenting of their sin. That's important to understand because we do live in an age that on one hand the world calls for love and on the other hand all the world seeks is humiliation and shame and, and just basically scoring some kind of points against someone else. Now, love does cover sin when there's repentance. You should never seek to bring humiliation and shame on a repentant sinner. Love also, very distinctly, pursues accountability. It pursues righteousness. Love helps fellow saints gain victory over sin by calling them to be conformed to Christ. When you're hated by the world, when you're hated even by those who claim to be believers, dear friend, remember, the Lord calls you to love, and he calls you to speak the truth in love. Next time, well, maybe not next week, but the week following, we'll, we'll continue in this passage. And we'll start getting into more of the specifics because John does lay out some pictures of what this love really ought to look like. But what we need to remember is that we must love him. We're only able to love him and to love others because the Lord first loved us. If you don't come to Christ in faith and repentance, you will never love him, and you can never love others. We love one another by setting forth the example of Christ. We love one another sacrificially, selflessly, and with a disciplined eye toward genuine accountability. So may the Lord grant us eyes to see and, to, and ears to hear his truth. May he write his word on our heart. If you don't know Christ as Lord and Savior, if you've never repented of your sins, dear friend, I pray that today would be the day of your salvation, that you would repent of your sins. Because if you don't, you're not promised your next breath. You don't know when the Lord may call you into eternity, and you will face judgment. It's either judgment whereby you're permitted to enter in heaven because you're covered with Christ's righteousness and your sins are forgiven because of his work at the cross, or you're sent to hell for all eternity. Hell will not be a party. Hell will not be a place where you're able to go and reconnect with old friends and family members. It's a place of eternal torment. It's a lake of fire, the scripture says. You will be burned and tormented and punished forever. Dear ones, come to Christ. He's the Savior of your sins. Come to him for forgiveness. And then give your life to Christ to live for his glory until he calls you to eternity. Let's pray.